This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. I am Scott Phillips, just back from a Ironman triathlon training. And he is Andrew Page, just back from swimming from New Zealand to Sydney. Mr. Page, how are you? Yeah, good. That was just the warm-up too. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll swim over to Bali next. <laughs> Mate, I'll tell you what, the, the amount of value we pack into a Sunday morning, even before we do this podcast, is extraordinary. Oh, it's just give, give, give. It's what we do. <sighs> it's, all, it's all we do. <laughs> oh, seriously. This, this podcast will become a parody of itself at some point, but until then, we will try and maintain some semblance of uh, connection to reality. How's your weekend been so far? Pretty good, I assume. Yeah, <laughs> we, are, we are recording this on Thursday morning, uh, mate. Let's let's get straight into the questions. Uh, one from Beck, uh, and I have said many many times, I love our female listeners. I love our male listeners as well, uh, but I love that women are getting more into investing and asking some questions, which is just awesome. Beck says, "Hi, Scott Ram. I have a question for the pod." She says, I'm trying to be brave and ask a question you have and you've done beautifully back. She says, thanks so much for your podcast. My sister put me on to you guys a few years ago and I have been listening ever since. Thank you. Thank you, Beck, to your sister as well. Usually she says, while walking my dog by the river. Sounds pretty nice. She's obviously been out walking the dog while we were out, uh, you know, conquering the world and doing the things we've been doing this morning. I was wondering how higher interest rates are impacting your investing she says, are you avoiding buying stocks right now and locking your money in term deposits to get the guaranteed 5%? I'm tempted by CSL. She says, it's been on my watch list for many years, but I've been burnt by trying to catch a falling knife a few times before. I'm trying to learn from my past mistakes. And she has the woman face palming emoji and wonder if investors are selling out of stocks and parking their money in term deposits. Thanks, Beck. She says, P.S. Obviously not asking for personal advice with a uh, mm. one of those open mouth shock emojis. Uh, Beck, you are, your emoji game is strong, much stronger than mine. Uh, when I send SMSs to my sister, Ram, I still use the colon and the bracket thing. I don't ever bother pressing the emoji button, which I know is very, very, very 1996. <laughs> Old school. Yeah. I just, I just, I just can't. I just, it just feels, anyway. That's just my issue. Beck is thankfully for her and for the rest of us uh, much more uh, tech savvy than I am. Some really good questions, mate. So um, let's, let's try and do them in order. Um, uh, first question bracketed. I was wondering how higher interest rates are impacting your investing. Are you avoiding buying stocks right now and locking your money in term deposits to get the guaranteed 5%? We kind of referenced this a little bit on Friday. Um, you talked about you know the risk uh, premium and, and, and what higher rates should do to interest rates. What are your thoughts, mate, on, uh, on, on that kind of question is now the time to be just putting money in cash and waiting for the better times to come or are there still opportunities for investors um if i was in retirement or very close to i think it'd be really tempted to i mean it just gosh five percent risk-free yeah. seems pretty good i made the point a couple of weeks ago that that uh it's better than the even the grossed up dividends from from so-called income companies mm-hmm. so it just it feels as though that that's a pretty easy choice if if that's my focus. Mm. Um, I'm not in retirement or not as close to it, it to be making those decisions. Mm-hmm. So I again refer to history. I think what what it tells you is is that if you're able to 
pick major turning points, then yeah, pick them because you'll do much better. <laughs> um, if you're a, um, if you live in reality and you recognize that you can't and no one has ever done that, then you just have to roll with the punches. So I pretty much, for as long as I've been doing this, have been largely fully invested. Mm. And I definitely have macro concerns. I think it's scary. I think on average, the PE for the wider market, I, last time I looked at it, it was like 18, 18 and a half. Uh, when, when you look at the entire all ordinaries yeah. against the against the historic average of 16 in an environment where interest rates are going up, um, I feel as though that's probably a little bit expensive. And I feel as though when you look at some of the bigger companies in there, some of the things that are doing the heavy lifting, there's just no value there. So I just... I think that is all true, but fortunately there is there is a lot of option out there and there's, there's stuff that I think is really good value. And I mean, it's gotten even better value in the last year. So <laughs> there is, which is another way of saying it's just continued to go down after I already thought it was good value. But but that is that is not unusual. That is usually what happens, I think, when when you're investing is that your timing is all over the place. But broadly speaking, there's enough opportunity and if there's enough time and you're just buying decent businesses at decent prices, it all works out really well in the end. By the time by the time it becomes really obvious that, to use the example, CSL is a great investment, uh, well, I mean, it, it's kind of it's kind of too late. You know, it's like by, by definition almost, everyone who recognizes it has bought it, has pushed the price up and it's no longer a great price anymore. You, 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 does that make sense? <laughs> so I, I, I feel as though... There are a lot of people that say, and I saw another headline in the AFR recently saying Buffett's buy and hold is no longer relevant. You know, just <laughs> every, like story. clockwork, you know, and you just think, mm, I, I don't know. It's true if you can predict these kinds of things. Mm. But I think as soon as you recognize that you won't be able to do it, at least not consistently over your investing career, you just mm. got to suck it up and roll with the punches and you'll always be buying at, at high levels and watching things fall. But <laughs> it just, it just, I mean, that's, that's yeah. been my experience. I mean, um, mm. my timing sucks, but overall, <laughs> so it's done pretty well, even, even despite the, the disastrous year that I've mm. had, you know, it's still the average compound annual return since I've started is very attractive. Even though I've gone through a, a pandemic, even though I've gone through a global financial crisis, even though I've gone through a tech bubble, even though I've gone through an Asian financial crisis, even though I've gone through multiple different wars, even, you know, it's just sort of like an interest rates moving all over. It just, you know, yeah. keep it simple. Keep it simple. Good companies, good prices, pop, pop them in the bottom drawer keep a bit of an eye on it but but don't be too active and and it'll work out yeah yeah i think i'm the same um beck i think uh i think it's expectations um i don't know you're catching a falling knife story um maybe it was a here's the thing i think i hate the phrase catching a falling knife um as a general rule um a genuine falling knife would be a business that was was destined to zero and you tried to buy it on the way down and got cut and that kind of disastrously. Um, the stock that goes from 50 to 40 and then goes back to 100 that you bought at 50 and then went to 40 and lost 20% of your investment isn't a falling knife. It's just volatility. So kind of Ram's point. Yeah. And I, I think and the reason I say it's about expectations is because... I've used this example before, Beck, and I, I used this phrasing before, but I'll say it again just because I think it's useful for any listener. And hopefully, um, as always, if anyone's asking a question, I'm, I'm sure there are a whole lot of listeners who aren't asking but wondering the same thing. So 
when we buy shares, we buy shares because we think the market's undervaluing them, or at least at their fair value, uh, and hoping to get more gains in the future. Because the you know if if they weren't undervalued, the market would already be paying up for them, and there'd be nothing left to, to get. Right. So the the reward for investing is saying I'm going to buy this because I think this is cheap relative to what the market's paying for it. Oh, sorry, what the market thinks it's worth. Uh, same thing, actually, I suppose. In the fullness of time, we go from the market's wrong. The day after, we say, "Why are my shares down? Why is the market? What's the market telling me?" And so we go from we go from telling the market it's wrong to then asking the market what it thinks. Literally, between the before and after pressing the buy button, and thereafter, we think, "Why have my shares gone up? What have I got wrong? What am I doing wrong?" Now, again, logically, if we bought the shares because we thought they were undervalued, we should have thought the market was wrong in the first place. So follow the logic with me. If the market's wrong before you buy, and then you buy. If the, whatever the market does after that, assuming the market might have just some, somehow recovered its senses and was therefore perfectly all-knowing thereafter, is a mistake of logic that we all make. And it's not a criticism of Ubeck or anyone else thinking this. It's what we all do. I still look at my portfolio, oh, my shares are down, that sucks. Uh, and I have to remind myself, it's actually because the market, you know, maybe I'm wrong, by the way, sometimes I will be, but expecting the market to know the answer all of a sudden is just crazy. And I say that because that's my issue with catching a falling knife. Um, if if CSL, for example, to use your question, is going to be worth $400 in a couple of years' time or five years' time or 10 years' time, whatever it is, it may get there directly in a straight line all the way up or it may have some up and down periods where things are good and bad. Um, I've used the example before of Berkshire has fallen, I think, I think I'm right in saying, has fallen 50% or more from its highs roughly once a decade since Warren Buffett took over. Now, <laughs> you know, was, was buying Berkshire ever catching a falling knife? Not in any serious sense. It may be the way that some people talk about catching a falling knives, i.e. share prices fall. But to Ram's point, you can't pick the bottom of these things. And so, frankly, I, I, say to our, I say to our members, I say, look, here's the thing. Within a year of buying any recommendation, I reckon there's a 50% chance of being up and 50% chance of being down because that's what the market does. And in fact, probably greater than 50% chance of being down because if I thought the market was wrong, then it's probably not going to change its mind anytime soon. In other words, it's probably going to keep being wrong. And if that means the share price is falling or not rising, I shouldn't be surprised by that. Now, my members don't love that message because they'd like to think I can pick the bottom because people in our industry hold themselves out as masters of the universe with all of the perfect answers. Um, Ram and I are very flawed humans who hopefully are right a little bit more than we're wrong. And hopefully when we're right, we're, we're more right than we are wrong. And the combination of those two factors should give us superior returns in the long term. So that's, that's my best general advice, as you rightly say, Beck, we can't give personal advice. Um, but the general advice I would share with you is just to, as Ram says, buy great companies, knowing they're going to be down sometimes, maybe by a lot and maybe for a long period of time. But if you buy quality businesses, and again, you can, uh, Ram's a small cap investor. I'm kind of a medium, large cap investor. CSL I don't own, but I've been tempted to. Um, CSL is a great business. And I would suspect it's worth more in five years time and 10 years time than it is today. And buying that should give you a pretty good result over that period of time. Now, don't just buy one, buy a portfolio of companies. Uh, but then I'll give you the, the examples of CSL itself, Woolworths, West Farmers, uh, help me out here, Ram, any of the banks over 40 mm. years. Um, these companies have built significant long-term wealth for shareholders going from smaller businesses to larger businesses over long periods of time. And so to Ram's point about being roughly right rather than precisely wrong, um, I think that sort of investing is going to give you good results. Will it beat turn deposits? I don't know. 
Um, I, I struggle. I don't want to get too much of a tangent here. I love ETFs. I love exchange-traded funds. I love passive investing. I really, really do. To Rand's point, though, when more than half the index is made up of banks and miners, if banks find business hard to do over the next couple of years and the miners uh, have commodity prices go against them uh, because they've been really high relatively recently, we could actually see the ASX go nowhere, maybe even backwards a little bit, even if the rest of the ASX, the non-miners of banks, do reasonably well. So I think I will get, I'll give you a simple example, right? This is not a recommendation. You can get 8% of the bank would turn deposit. You can get about 9.5% at the moment or 9% with Harvey Norman shares. Now, that money's not guaranteed. <laughs> it could, the dividend could cut, get cut in half. It could get cut in half again. But not only is Harvey paying a good dividend, there are franking credits, and I think the shares are cheap. Now, I own those shares for full disclosure. I also own Berkshire Hathaway. Um, I own Harvey Norman because I think it'll beat cash over the medium and long term. Now, I don't think the banks will beat cash over the medium and long term, at least you know from here. Um, in in capital value wise, but that being said, their yields, their their dividend yields are pretty good already. And again, throwing frank credits on top of that, you'll probably do reasonably well. So I am still buying shares. I bought shares most recently three-ish weeks ago. Um, could I get more in cash? I don't think so. I think I'll do better even even with a guaranteed five percent. I think I'll do better over the long term in shares. Uh, and throw frank credits on the dividends. If you're a dividend investor, um, you get an extra bit of money on top of that. So, and by the way, you pay tax on your five percent unless you're in less than super. Uh, so, think about the after-tax impact of those. I still think high quality, and not not quotes blue chip. The other people say are blue chip, but proper high quality companies paying a decent yield uh, will do as well or better than cash over the long term. And five percent over twelve months is nice, but if I can get seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve percent a year for years and compound that uh, and tax effectively, including by the way either uh, not having to cash out capital gains, let them compound and avoiding paying tax at all until I sell or getting a dividend that has franking credits, which means that 5% turn deposit is the same as what, 3.5% RAM, I think it is. Yep. Um, dividend yield. I still think I still think shares the better option. Bearing in mind, you have to ride the waves of volatility. And Becky, I know you know that because the way you phrased your, your question. Uh, just, just, be, just be mindful of that. It's a more volatile way to make money. Uh, partly that volatility is what we have to endure to get that extra return. Again, I'll say one last time, well, one last time for the next three minutes anyway, check the Vanguard index chart to look at cash versus shares and over time, which would you have been better in? Uh, you have to though, accept volatility, sometimes really ugly stomach churning volatility to get those sort of returns. So you need to make a decision for yourself as to what you're prepared to deal with and cope with, uh, how you feel that kind of nets out for you. Anything else on that, mate? No, covered. Let's go to a question from Jono. Uh, I really like this question, mate. Um, he says, uh, <laughs> um, a question I've been thinking about for a while, but didn't want to get into specifics as it relates to a fairly small company. He says, but Ram mentioned on the pod the other day, so I figured the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> I try to keep the companies I'm familiar with and do this by generating ideas from the brands and businesses I interact with and I like. Looking around, I saw a Sony TV, a Sony PlayStation, and a Sony camera. Hmm, he says, might be worth looking into. I went through my wallet. NAB, Visa, Qantas, worth a look at least. Adair's boxes keep arriving at our house, says John Owen. Long may I say as a shareholder, I hope that continues for a very long time to come. I'm sending this question from an Apple iPhone before I go to work in a VW. 
Recurring payments too. Adobe subscriptions every month. And I'd never cancel them. But one thing kept popping up that I hated paying for, but paid for all the time. Parking and parking fines. That's how I got onto smart parking. If you can't beat them, join them, says Jono. I'm a bit of a fan of that. If you're going to pay a bill, you might as well get something back. Uh, if I'm paying for something, even if I don't want to, that must be the sign of a toll moat, right? But what's the difference between a toll moat and a company or industry that is just begging for disruption and or regulation? What carries more weight when looking into the long term? That I don't want to pay for it or that I still end up paying for it anyway? Cheers, gents, from Jono. And he finishes saying, love the pod, rants and all. Thank you, mate. <laughs> um, I really like this question, mate, because there's a really interesting way to think about moats, think about the sort of products that we interact with regularly. Uh, what's your take? Uh, do, you, do you follow Smart Parking closely enough to have you on the company? But also the moatiness or otherwise of it, I think is the crux of Jono's question. Yeah, I know it well. Uh, we're actually speaking to Paul Gillespie next week or week after. Nice. Uh, he's coming to speak to our members. So yeah, and he's spoken to us before. I mentioned on Friday uh, companies in the small cap space that have effectively pivoted from cash burning to viable. Um, they've sort of run that. It's, it's always phrased as a bad thing. Oh, they're burning cash. But as you rightly pointed out on Friday, it's like, well, you've got to set up a business and operation. Cash goes out the door on day one and then it comes in later. Mm. So it's not unusual for small growth companies for that to happen. But they've effectively pivoted. They're viable or look like they're sustainably viable at this point. And lo and behold, the share price is up quite a lot this year as a result. We're in, in, in a small cap growth tech environment where things are being smashed, uh, which is just <laughs> under, <laughs> underscoring the point I made on Friday that companies that have yeah. sort of shown that they are able to stand on their own two feet have, have, have been what rightly recognized. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think I like the company. Um they 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 are more doing um, technology around that to make it easier for mm. operators of car parks to sort of bill and monitor and do it in a much more effective way. They've got a solution there that's that's pretty cool. Um, mm. They're not the only environment. They're not the only operators of that. There's a lot of different companies that sort of do a similar thing. But I think they're pretty. I think they're pretty savvy operators. I do love the idea of looking at things through your own lens and going what would cause me to stop paying this? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, it's a great starting point. I've, I've, the the go-to example for me over the years has been Zero, mm. uh, which I use for my business. And I'm sure there's probably someone to make a case that, you know, QuickBooks is better because of this or that. I'm just not going to do it, right? Mm. And and they can increase the prices on me. I'm just going to pay it because it's too much of a hassle and I've got a thousand other balls in the air, right? Yeah. And that's a deeply moated company. I call it a trapdoor moat, right? Like once you're in, you're in. Mm. Um and and I, I think that's I think that's not the be all and end all, but it's definitely a very valuable data point. So I love I love the starting point. Be in bear in mind though that there are a lot of companies that deliver incredible value for their customers and very poor value for their investors. <laughs> yeah, I want to say I haven't looked at this for a while, but I want to say Uber. Like that's a great example. Actually, we are all yeah. better yeah. off for Uber. Because yep. I can, it's cheaper, better, uh, you know. <laughs> a lot of venture capital not- investors are contributing a whole lot of money to us getting around the, around, around the city cheaply and easily. Yeah. Really easy, you know. Yeah. But yeah. but but has that created value for share? Actually, when you look at their last time, I looked at their financial statements because they did make a profit for the first time ever recently. 
But if, but the the carried forward losses on their balance sheet are huge. <laughs> like since <laughs> since they have been in existence, they mm-hmm. have only they, yeah they, they have lost a lot more money than they have made. A lot more money than they have they have made. Mm-hmm. So it, so I guess what I'm saying is is that you the the consumer experience can be vastly different from the investor experience but it's still a good place to start definitely a great place to 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 look at and and ask yourself what would stop me from buying this stuff what about smart parking is there a moat there uh, is there an investable moat there um what what do you think of the size and quality of that moat if there is one I need to refresh myself on my notes, but I would. I, I think the the this is a good example of a company where the battle is really won at, at trying to win the tender in the first place. Once you're in, once a company right. or a counterparty has said, "Yeah, we're going to use your solution," and they've installed you, it tends to be pretty sticky because it works much better than the solution you had before. Mm. Life is just easier. You're making more revenue. Maybe someone else comes along saying, "Hey." Strathfield Local Council, we've got a better parking. And like, yeah, we've kind of, this works for us. It's already, we've made the invest. So I've, I feel as though it's a pretty sticky kind of thing. So there's somewhat of a, a trapdoor moat that's, yeah. that, that is kind of there. But they, but they, you know, I don't know if you'd call this a moat or just more of a um, operational excellence, if that's the yeah. right term for it, where it's like there is definitely a skill in being able to present to potential clients and convince them to to take your solution and to implement it well and seamlessly and make sure they have a good experience. These things tend to have a bit of momentum because you get better at the pitch, at the installation, (laughs) and and you tend to have – Better reference clients. The oh, first a bit of reputation the, benefit. Yeah, the, I, I can't. I put maybe I put too much emphasis on this, but I feel as though there's a lot of companies that have these really cool solutions, and they just can't. They just can't get arrested because mm. they knock on the door of all these big customers, and they're like, oh, we, <laughs> you are doing it so wrong. Oh my gosh, we mm. could save you. I've got a bunch of companies. I've got money in. Right, but they've done exactly that, and the company's like, yeah, it's just not our focus today. We're not doing it. Yep. We've got we've got we've got bigger fish to fry. Yeah, exactly. Management has told us they'll pull the reins in on a capital expenditure for them, so we're just not doing it. Yeah, yeah, but 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 yeah, it doesn't happen. <laughs> That's right. Now you go and you say you knock on the door of Rio Tinto and you say BHP, Fortescue Metals, mm-hmm. you know, etc. have all just implemented our solutions. And look at this site here. We can point to a case study where we have actually saved them ten million dollars per annum and we've reduced their accident uh, frequency by, you know, mm-hmm. where do I sign? You know, yeah, so th- yeah. that, that that is that is, which is why they when they do get a bit of steam, you know, underway, things can really really go well there. And and ProMedisk is probably my best example here, actually, because they really changing the way that scans were images were sort of stored and sent around. And when you knock on the door and say the Mayo Clinic is using our solution, <laughs> Johns Hopkins, yeah, exactly. John Hopkins yeah. is, yeah, you know, and, and now they're just like they just they're just writing sales all the time because yeah. they've they, they have they've crossed the chasm on that front mm. where it's like you don't want to be the person in your organization that took a chance mm-hmm. on this unknown ASX small cap company. The sales guy said it would do this, 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 and this, yeah, but it didn't work, and no one else of our peers did it. You're an idiot. Yeah. Now, if you if you took on IBM solution and it went bad. It's not your fault. <laughs> you know, because you, you just did what everyone else did. There, there is an inordinate amount of social proof in everything that we do as humans. And it's definitely true in business. So you want, if you're the purchasing decision maker in an organization and you went with the most recognized established brand that all your competitors using and it doesn't work out, you're not going to get in too much trouble. You haven't, you haven't stuck your neck out too far. 
by by doing that. And and that is a competitive advantage for companies that can sort of get there. I went way way away from your original question, but no, no I, I like hopefully it, that helped. I like it. Um, a couple of very quick thoughts just just for the fun of it i just looked up the numbers uh uber has 32 billion dollars worth of cumulative losses Oof. last quarter for the first time they made a profit of 394 million dollars of which 386 million was an unrealized gain from an equity investment so effectively they made if you exclude that a profit of eight million dollars with 32 billion of cumulative losses racked up uh, as you say yeah. that's 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 the money that effectively they've handed over to everyone who's used an uber over the last x number of years uh and uh, and made some money you know we, we've been bene- we've benefited from the technology and the rise and everything else we've benefited from our our trips being subsidized effectively by investors who tip that money in should say too by the way 32 billion of cumulative losses the market cap's 88 billion dollars so also wow. puts that in some 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 pretty significant context. Wow. Um, I'm gonna I don't know the, the smart partner as well as you do, Ram. I'm just gonna weigh in quickly. Um, John, I would think about moats in a couple of different ways. The there's a in um in the FMCG fast moving consumer goods. So think about consumer goods, you know, cereals and baked beans, whatever markets. They make a distinction between the shopper and the consumer. And it's most obvious when you have, for example, mum or dad, who it's probably mostly mum, although I do the grocery shopping in our house, uh, mum or dad buy the groceries, they're the shopper, but you might be buying, I don't know, snacks for the kids. The kid is the consumer. And so you've kind of got two different groups to convince. You want mum or dad to think that's worth buying and you want the kid to go, yeah, I want more of that. And so you kind of got these two layers. When you think about smart parking and some other things as well, but smart parking is a great example. The purchase, the, the customer for smart parking is not you or me. It's actually the the council or the organization who's using smart parking's uh, facilities. And then there is the, in this case, we'll call it the consumer, uh, who is paying for parking or paying the parking fines potentially um, to, to use the space. Now, your choice is not probably in my mind uh, or your experience is probably not the key business relationship here for smart parking uh in other words whether you like it or hate it whether you use it or don't hate it use it it's not that that's not going to determine whether or not smart parking is successful it's going to be whether to ram's point they can retain and and um attain new contracts with uh these the the parties the partners are effectively the councils or the the states or the organizations shopping centers yeah who are putting these 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 uh technologies in so i would and so what you're thinking, your, your, your experience is with a parking system uh, at a facility where you have to pay to park. If they change from smart parking to RAM parking tomorrow, you would still use it. You would still pay for it. You would still pay the fines. So I would suggest that your use of that car park is not a, a direct reflection on smart parking necessarily, but the fact that that facility is attractive enough for you to pay to park at. Mm. And so I would I would just think about that a little bit differently. Exactly Ram's point about where the where the value chain is. Now if the mm. if the shopping center or the, the council car park or whatever says I I can't do without smart parking, then that's the moat. If they can say, actually Ram Parking just offered me a million dollars worth of free uh, capital, they'll come rip out the existing stuff, put in the new stuff, and they'll collect the the you know ninety percent of the, the parking in, in return, then smart parking hasn't really got a moat. So I would just encourage you to think about the moat in the context of who's paying 
the so who's doing the deal who's who's signing the contracts who owns the decision as to whether or not that party is allowed to make some money you'd think it's you because you know you're paying them and they're providing you the access so it feels like that's the deal but the contract's actually signed with the owner of the real estate asset this in this instance so I would just think about that about moats a little bit that way you're right to think about the there's moatiness in parking charges because the car park's always full and everyone's paying a certain amount of money so you're right about that i would probably suggest frankly that probably says more about the um the car park itself you're parking in rather than who's actually running the billing software and, and access software so yep. again which is not not so smart parking's not a great business not worth buying um i would suggest the moat there isn't in your use of it the moat may be in the fact that they have something, as Ram said, a trapdoor moat or something similar, where the, the the asset owner doesn't want to get rid of them. That's yep. the relationship I'd be uh, investigating when thinking about a moat from that perspective. The other thing that's the nuance here that's important to understand is the um, they need access to databases for number plates and contact mm-hmm. details and that. That's hard to get. Yes. And you've got if you get that, it's a bit of an advantage. Not that no one else can get it, but it's just you know you're dealing with government agencies. It can take forever. It's just it's really tricky. And so, I think that's another great strength of theirs. I always really in, um, pay attention to sectors that are undergoing strategic or mm. structural shifts. I think is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I look at my local shopping center, and I'm still getting a plas- a paper ticket. <laughs> you know, with a barcode yeah, on it, yeah. and I, you know, and you think, how many car parks are there in the world? And and you you do see them being rolled out. Like, there's another shopping center yeah. near me. I just walk in, it just scans the number plate, the gate opens. It's all just, it's much more seamless. It's going to direct me to the vacant spots. It's just going to, it's going to do everything for me. That's that's better. But more importantly, at your point, for the customer, it's like, well, what what matters to me? Is ma- I want to make sure I've got the maximum number of people in here that anyone who is breaking the rules, we're going to find and find effectively without having to run around and chase it all up and make, you know, all that kind of, um, that, that kind of nonsense. Mm. And it's a very attractive proposition when someone comes up and goes, listen, you've got to replace this stuff because it's breaking down all the time. You've got people taking the mickey and parking there all day when they're at you know at work in the city and they're just using you as free parking and da 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 and it's like we're just going to make you more money and more efficient and mm. that's nice when they've got two or three prospects that are out there <laughs> but when you've got 80% of global parking lots still running mm. you know in the 1960s that's mm. that's and again it's not the only company that's doing it there's a lot of them that are out there right but it is a it is always i think a nice thing when you're in an industry that is going through that transition of modernizing and you've got a good solution with a bit of traction positive favorable unit economics the balance sheet capacity to sort of yeah uh or at least access the credit that you can continue to grow and expand and take advantage of that opportunity uh, very interesting setup. So some serious money can be made in those in those areas. But remember too that the market's incredibly impatient, and people will often get the story. Go, oh, it's fantastic! Yeah. This is going to happen. Like six months in, it's like share price is down fifteen percent. They're all yeah. they're all con men, and you know this all sucks. You know they they there's two things. One is it just it takes years for these things to play out. Mm. And secondly, if you really want the full benefit of the gains. You've got to give it years to play out. It's it's not it's not the forty percent gain you made in two years that's going to to make or break you as an investor. It's the investment that's compounded at fifteen percent per annum for ten years plus that has 
put some serious food on the table. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lobster specifically, right? <laughs> like that's that is far better than yeah. than the nice easy win that you're gonna hope you know you might get lucky on on the market. So you wanna you wanna find them and you wanna stick to them. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. Hey mate, one from Scott, not this Scott, a different Scott, who says, Hi Scott and Ram. You've both mentioned exposure to the NASDAQ 100 in your own and your members' portfolios. To date, we've only ever talked about the beta shares NDQ ETF, as this has been the only option available. With Global X N100 ETF having similar properties for half the fees, would either of you consider this option for new money? For the long term and for a lifetime of investments, this amount could become substantial. BetaShares and GlobalX are both, quotes, not Vanguard, end quote, so I don't see a major manager-related point of difference. Thanks again for all you do to support us long-term investors. And that's from Scott. Mate, um, have you looked at the new GlobalX N100 NASDAQ ETF? No, but I can't fault the reasoning at all. I mean, if they're half the price, <laughs> you know, they've stuck with the same regulations there is some counterparty risk in there but again these these things are held in trust by a custodian so you'd think that there are protections against mismanagement unless there's outright fraud which is you know very unlikely um yeah why wouldn't you go the cheaper one i think i agree um i'll probably i'll probably talk about the the decision and then kind of get to my thoughts um scott the first thing i would say and this is where frankly why i like vanguard i know it's they're both not vanguard and you're right we've i certainly expect a very strong preference for vanguard the reason i like vanguard though i'll get back to your point not about vanguard but it's illustrative is that i hope to invest for decades in some of these etf investments and so when I'm effectively betting on Vanguard as a fund manager, I'm making a bet, and it could well be wrong, by the way, because no one knows the future, that my, my bet is over 40 years, I think Vanguard will probably be the least regret option. <laughs> um, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, who I own shares, talks about the regret minimization framework, right? So if I think, okay, if I if I invest in Vanguard and the fees don't end up being lower over 40 years, then I'll be disappointed, but I can't fault my own decision. If I was to invest in a higher fee or a for-profit ETF and in 40 years, they were at the lowest fees, I said, well, I probably should have expected that. So in that context, Vanguard, I, I'm, I'm happy to say, with a very super long-term perspective, I want to throw my chips in there. I raise that because I'm less sure about these two. Now, you don't have to have one or the other, by the way, and you can add appropriately. The hardest part with any of these investments, because the fees, in terms of differentiating at least between two ETFs, are kind of the major component or likely to be the major component, you kind of try or I've tried to guess, because it is a guess, educated hopefully, which fees are going to be lowest over time. And I say all that because the current fees now may or may not be illustrative of what the fees are like in two years' time, let alone seven, let alone 21, let alone 40 years. And which is, by the way, is not an excuse to choose one or the other. I guess what I'm saying in general is they're both as uncertain as each other. If you said over 40 years, which of these two fund managers is likely to give me the lowest fees? I don't have a strong ability to guess which is most likely. Um, because I don't, I don't know how we would. It's probable that the lowest fees will be offered by the ETF provider with the largest funds under management because they can spread that money around. 
And so I think I have, I have no dog in the fight with either. I own BetaShares ETF, but if if everyone, if every single person listening now sold them and bought the other one, it would make no difference to the unit price. So I, there's no bias or no self-interest here. I think I would probably choose the larger of the two um, for two reasons. One, the larger one, if they remain larger, are likely to have lower fees ongoing or have the opportunity to lower their fees ongoing. The other one is what I love about, by the way, the Global X one, and maybe some of us should jump dump money in there just to support Global X because the fact that it exists, we're putting pressure on BetaShares to actually lower its own fees anyway. So as someone who owns the BetaShares NDQ ETF, uh, I haven't added to that ETF in a while, um, largely for currency reasons. We've talked about lots before. Um, I'm hopeful that Global X's existence means BetaShares drop their fees and I benefit from that. But if I was going to bet over 40 years and say which one of those do I think would have the lowest fees, I don't know I could split the difference. But I think in that context, I'd start with the one with the largest amount of funds under management because in ETF management, scale matters. And I think the larger one is probably likely to continue to have the largest, um, uh, the largest asset base and therefore, should it choose to, be able to defray those costs across a larger asset base. Does that, does that make any sense, Ram? Am I talking out of my, wrong side of my mouth? What, what are your thoughts on, on that approach? Scale wins in the ETF game, 100%. Should do, shouldn't yeah. yeah, that's why Vanguard is the king, right? Because they, <laughs> they, they got the, well, they invented the category, they yeah. got the scale, and they, they invested those profits into lower prices mm. um, and, and therefore remained the best the most competitive so mm. yeah it, you you whether or not they uh do pass on that is is the other question you would imagine That's in correct. a free and open and competitive market that that would be the case mm -hmm. but yeah i mean yeah the, 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 i guess where i hesitate is that right now right mm -hmm. now the question as framed is well this one's half the price yeah yeah now, you may have to figure out, well, how long until that equalizes and there's mm -hmm. a penalty in selling one and buying another. But for new money, yeah. Global X is a big company, New York listed. You know, they're, they're, not, yeah. a, they're not a bucket show. Well, I hope not. Um, I don't know them intimately <laughs> well, but, but they feel like they're a, yeah. a reasonably, is, is, you know, I, I feel as though that's probably the better choice right now for new money, just because as, as the listener says, it's half, half the price. The other thing I'm going to say, mate, just in terms of ETF, though, and I don't know enough to know this for sure, so I want to be a little bit careful about how I express this. Um, I don't... The, there is a, there's a meaningful, though not huge, difference in the weightings of the different companies in the two ETFs as I'm looking at these now. And I'm also mindful, if I look at the beta shares one, the target index is the it's a nasdaq but i'm just gonna remember exactly what it says on the page so i don't um mislead anybody the index is the nasdaq 100 notional net total return index mm -hmm. yeah which is kind of the nasdaq mm -hmm. that's the that's the beta shares product the global x one the index it tracks is the global x 100 us 100 etf uh, tracking the global x us 100 index in other words, they've created their own index to track. Okay. Okay. Now that means you're not necessarily tracking the same index or getting the same results. And also when you compare them, you're not comparing like for like. And I'll just, I'm not going to do this in full detail on, on audio because no one likes doing numbers on audio. But the NASDAQ 100 ETF from BetaShares, the top position is Apple with 11%, then Microsoft with 10.5%. On the Global X, and these are as exactly the same date, 
Um, the Global X top holdings, Microsoft with 12% rather than the NASDAQ 10.4. Apple 10.7 compared to 11%, which was the highest holding for uh, the beta shares one. Uh, and if I go down to, for example, the 10th largest holding is Adobe on the uh, beta shares product. It doesn't exist at all inside the top 10. Um, uh, Costco is in there instead of it, for example. Meta exists in the Global X one doesn't exist in the top 10 on the beta shares one. Now, oh, you make an excellent point. I, I was on, I was under the assumption they both tracked the NASDAQ. Which I have a, I want to be a little bit careful here, but if you call something, if you give something the code N100, you're kind of implying that. Mm. And for all I know, the beta shares index, sorry, start again. The Global X index may be trying to copy the NASDAQ index without paying the NASDAQ fees to copy its own index. I, I don't really know what's going on here. So worth a look, worth understanding what's going on, worth understanding why it's being done. Again, I'm not even saying that's bad. The, the numbers, the weightings aren't materially different, uh, different enough to be noticeable because Apple's number one on, on one of them and Microsoft's number one on the other one. So you're going to go, that's interesting slash weird. Um, I'm not saying it should matter. I'm not saying it should be a problem. I'm not suggesting anything's different other than to make sure our listeners know these are not identical funds tracking identical indices. And so to whatever extent, uh, either index provider changes their index, you may well get different results. So again, I'm, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily make a, a, a different view about that. Um, it is also true that the size of the, the current size, at least anyway, there's only $8.8 million in the Global X product. Now, not Global X as a fund manager, this very specific product has $8.8 million in it. Uh, and I'm madly scrolling so if I can find out what the size of the NASDAQ 100 is with beta shares. Um, if the if the provider, they go $3.4 billion is the, is the Peter shares number. If the provider was to close the ETF, um, you would be forced to liquidate and a capital gains tax event would be crystallized as a result. So just be mindful of that as well. And that's the other reason I'd go with the larger one. Um, I hope, as I said, Peter shares brings their, brings their fee down. Um, I'm glad uh, Globalex is there. If I was going to invest money tomorrow, I would, I'm probably I'm not conservative as an investor, but I don't tend to make uh, I'm slow to change my mind, so maybe, maybe I don't know if that's the definition of conservatism or not. Um, I, I, if I was going, if you gave me a thousand dollars tomorrow and said put it in a in a tech-heavy U.S.-based ETF, I'd still put it in beta shares. That might be silly because I'm costing myself more money in fees. Um, I, I just think in, I haven't been convinced to make the shift across yet, uh, but I wouldn't begrudge anyone who did that instead. Hmm. Yep. Any other thoughts on that, mate? No, I think we covered it. Beautiful. Um, interesting question from James this is not a question we cover a lot and not a question I necessarily have a huge amount of in, uh, expertise in but I'll ask it because James asked it and, uh, and Andrew you may have a, a way to answer his question James says uh, just a very simple question hi Scott and Ram I've got a question for the mailbag is there nuance to gold and silver strategies thank you <laughs> James well, you go first. This, <laughs> <laughs> this is a good question. Why? Just really a really simple, short, very good question. Yeah, there. I mean, there's definitely nuance, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think uh, on one end, it's just completely outrageously stupid. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, gold is really just so funny. It's, we've got a ten thousand year history with it, 
but you know most of what we use it for is just polishing it up and putting it in a vault somewhere uh, jewelry is by far the second largest but that that ornamental there's not really much use for it so you can yeah. kind of look at it and by the way, this this is always this is always one of my little Bitcoin go tos, right? People go, it's got <laughs> it's got no intrinsic value, or it's like, well, so you know, or you can't spend it at shops. Like, well, sounds a lot like this other thing that we have a twelve trillion dollar market cap value on. But anyway, um, so that's why I kind of say, like, from a, a hyper utilitarian kind of viewpoint, it sort of mm. feels like what. But the more realistic view is, is that, well, actually, a lot of people value it. Rightly or wrongly, they just do, right? And again, there's a, there's a huge history in, in, in why that is and actually makes a great deal of sense when you, when you dive into it. Mm. And, and then it's a question of, well, when you say invest in gold, what? Am I actually buying the physical stuff? Am I buying an ETF? Mm. Have I got it held at a custodian somewhere? I've got to pay for armor guard and the vault and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Or am I buying a gold miner? And if I'm buying a gold miner, is it a prospector? Is it a producing company? What are their assets? I mean, it, there, there is a whole way of getting exposure to gold and they'll all be very, very, very different. So the, to answer the question, yes, there's a ton of nuance. <laughs> there's a huge amount of nuance yep. to it. Yep. I would like, I, I don't generally do it um, because I, there's a better form of gold. But um, if I was to go into uh, gold, <laughs> I would say, I mean, gold that you can teleport, and inst- that, that's pretty cool. But I, if, I, if I was, I would be, and I know we've got a few members on Strawman who like to do this, where they actually look at the productive assets of a gold mining company and sort of say, yeah, they've got really good gold. They've got really good cost of production. They're making good margin on this. They've got a few different tenements where they can mine this when the price is high and mine that when the price is low. It's a viable operation and it's trading at a cheap price. You can do extremely well out of that, right? So, I mean, I don't buy fast fashion jewelry either, but I can still see the value in LaVisa. So, it doesn't have to be and shouldn't ever be about you and what you think. It's what... what reality in the wider world thinks. <laughs> and and I think some people do very, very well at that. Where I have the hesitation is where you have the first level thinking and people go X, therefore Y. And I just think, mm, you know, is, 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 are you buying gold because you've got some pure macro bet? Is that is that what it is? And I'd, I'd, hesit- I'd, I'd caution you to to make broad macro bets because they're, they're, dif- they're phenomenally difficult. But you can even be right on what you think is going to happen at a, a sort of global macroeconomic level and how gold reacts in that context might not be as you expect. In fact, there's been a lot of gold bugs out there that have been dumbfounded by some of the, some of the price movements in there given what has happened in the world and given how the world may have reacted to that at a different point in time. So it's not for me, but I, I don't fault anyone who's getting into it for the right reasons, having a very clear understanding of the commodity itself and the way it's produced and the economics that are involved. Yeah, that's a lovely summary, mate. Um, it, it, it starts even one step before that, which is kind of implied by your thing is, but what are you, what are you looking for? Mm. So a lot of people will buy gold specifically to hedge against something, which is its own strategy independent of just expecting things to go up, which is if the market goes down and gold won't go down as much as their hope. On the other hand, if the market goes up, gold then tends to not go up as much, uh, which is the point of hedging. So it, it even starts about uh, with the role. The strategy starts with the role of gold or silver in a portfolio. Uh, are you, what are you buying it for? Are you buying it for capital growth or are you buying it for hedging, uh, minimizing downside, for example? And that it, it kind of spreads out from there. Um, you've done a nice job, Matt, talking about the commodity versus the producers, which is, which is really important. 
Um, the problem with any of these commodities is it relies on a relatively unknown future price. And ironically, the two hardest, in my opinion, and, and I don't claim absolute expertise in the area, so take it with a grain of salt, the two hardest commodities to do this for are gold and oil because they don't operate as free markets in the way that other commodities do. Copper is used in electrical equipment and you know, yes, some people stockpile it sometimes. Uh, yes, occasionally there's shortages or surpluses, but generally speaking, it's mined and used. That's pretty straightforward. Gold, because as you say, mate, is thrown in vaults, it's worn on fingers, it's hoarded from time to time. There's a lot of sentiment that goes into the price of gold and the demand for gold. A lot of people, because it is used as a hedge or as an alternative for investing in shares, there's a heap of market behavior that's rolled into this. So, you know, no, no one's buying copper because they expect the market to fall. They're buying copper because they want to put it in a washing machine or a battery. Um, now, again, a few people might be hoarding copper for that reason, but generally speaking, it's not the case. So the market tends to work on a relatively clear supply and demand. Now, that's hard enough, right? Working out future supply and demand and because pricing is always on the margins, even the price of copper flings around a lot. Price of gold even more so. Uh, what will the stock market do? How many people will buy or sell their gold based on that? Uh, how many people will buy or sell gold based on what they think the stock market will do? And then, you know, the Keynesian beauty contest we've talked about before kind of goes on and on and on. Uh, I'm betting that Ram thinks that you think that I think that he thinks that I think something else. Uh, and if that feels weird, it absolutely is. And that's exactly, whenever you bring sentiment or speculation or market, is exactly what's going on. You're not saying this is what I think it's worth. You're saying this is what I think someone else will think it's worth. And that person will think it's worth something because of what someone else might think it might be worth. And then you layer all these assumptions together. It makes it a really, really tough thing um, to, to really talk about in 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 kind of you know base supply and demand details mm. so and the challenge with that is that if they work out what's the future price of gold going to be and i think you all you can do is shrug you might have an educated guess smarter people than me more informed people than me might have a more educated guess uh but it's just bloody hard to do um same with any commodity but particularly gold because it's not used up in the same way uh, oil is oil is the same for different reasons because the opec cartel controls supply and therefore can manipulate price and so again, there's no free market where you get to say the interaction of supply and demand means X. You say the interaction of supply and demand plus the thumb on the scale from OPEC deciding how much they want to sell and at what price says X. Mm. Uh, and that's got its own geopolitical issues and it goes around and around from there. So gold strategies are really, really hard. Um, the other thing, by the way, is if everyone's already thinking the same, the price is already the same. If you, By the time you say, I'm going to buy gold because I think this will happen, if everyone else has already thought that, the price already reflects that thing that's going to happen. So I'm going to just say it a bit more slowly. If I think that uh, in the future there'll be a shortage of toilet paper, then I'm going to go and buy some toilet paper. But if everyone else is already thinking the same, then the shelves are already bare. And I missed my chance to buy the toilet paper, right? Obviously going back to the, to the 2020 great toilet paper crisis uh, that we all remember full and well. Um, so I've got to think that thing when no one else is thinking that thing if I want to get in first and get all the toilet paper before everyone else does. So it's kind of, again, you're talking about layers upon layer upon layer of assumption and guesswork and, and timing here. Um, you know, by, we know, we know that, you know, interest rates are already 4.1% official cash rate, 6%-ish if you're borrowing money from the bank right now. Um, you know, whatever you think might happen with interest rates, the, the rate's already there. Uh, and so it was only the person who said at 0.1, hey, I think this will happen in this time frame, and I'm going to bet on that, that gets ahead of the game. But you've got to do it before everyone else does. Now, 
Everyone else is trying to do it before everyone else does too. And again, I'm back to that idea of, you know, I think it's going to happen. So Ram thinks it's going to happen. You think it's going to happen. So which one of us gets there first? And if you're all the way early, I think in five years time, this is going to happen. You spend five years making no money because no one else thinks it's going to happen yet. So timing really matters. And timing is bloody difficult. So uh, again, I'm only repeating what Ram says, just trying to give it a different a different spin. But uh, there's lots of nuance, lots of potential opportunities, lots of potential uh, pitfalls as well. Uh, I don't invest in gold and silver. I don't imagine any time I'm going to. The one time I almost did, uh, if I was going to invest in this industry, I would be buying miners when the commodity price was low and the share price was low. Just straight out because the if you think about the range of outcomes, gold's never going to be worth exactly zero. It's probably going to be worth a million dollars. But the closer it is to zero, the better the chance it'll be worth more in future because these things tend to be reflecting the cost of production. And there's a whole lot of, we can talk about that maybe another time, but uh, basically if it costs, I'm going to pick some numbers here, 1300 bucks an ounce to get it out of the ground, then when the price is below that, no one's going to get it out of the ground because why would you bother? Uh, now, if, when the price is down around that level, you say, okay, well, in theory, if people still want gold, they probably will. People will get it out of the ground only when it's worth more than this. But if I buy it at this price, when everyone's assuming it's only this price, then I get more upside. If it costs 1300 bucks to get out of the ground and I'm buying it for four grand, then there's a lot built into the price. And I could, I could go and open a new gold mine, dig it out and sell it for less than that. That should bring the price back down. So again, just to kind of counter-cyclically looking at supply and demand is how I'd think about it if I wanted to play a gold game. Yeah. I mean, it's, so, it's such a fascin- fascinating area. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it kind of, it has value just because we just trust that there's only so much of it. it it's the yeah. scarcest good. And, you know, it's sort of, um, and it's demonstrated itself as the hardest money over thousands of years. So it's yep. sort of, when Roman emperors start clipping coins and, you know, boulevards <laughs> start getting printed, it's sort of like, well, I just want to, I want some, I need something that's globally accepted and other people will see it as value, but that you can't make more of that. It's value proposition is its scarcity and its verifiability and its acceptance. That's, that's its value prop. And is that stupid? No, I think it's actually really smart. <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 it is something that serves an incredible purpose. Uh, for 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 the vast bulk of of our history, um, we've decided in the last hundred years that we don't need it anymore, and most specific in the last fifty years where we've really gone off the gold standard, and uh, we're still seeing what that experiment leads to. But mm-hmm. but yeah, you're. I mean, you make the right point. I mean, what's it going to be worth in the future? I don't know. Yeah. It's really yeah. it's really tough. Now now it's got a rival too. It's the first time it ever. So that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> let's not go um, there though <laughs> I, won't, I won't other than to say that we are intending to uh, do a, a very quick uh, catch up on what all things Bitcoin at some point uh, yeah. soon not, it, won't be a, it won't be a long chat but maybe maybe next week we'll see if we've yep. got some time Motley Fool Money for more subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener uh, let's go to a question from Russell who says hi Scott and Ram I've been investing now for a few years I'm a little bit older than you guys, so you don't have to hate me. But I do enjoy running on a Sunday morning, so you may, again, hate me. I appreciate that, Russell, and we do, and we don't, and we do. We have basically paid off our house, well done, and have started dollar cost averaging into ETFs and an LIC over the past few years and using money in my mortgage offset account for investing. This is brackets, great idea with the interest rate increases, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, sorry, mate. Uh, I originally liked the idea of the FIRE movement, financially independent retire early, but I understand that I'm nearly 50. 
I'm now just looking to build wealth. My question refers to dividend reinvestment plans. I have all of mine ticked to reinvest at the moment and I'm trying to work out whether this was a good idea. I have so many small buy transactions now, which are getting hard to keep track of. I'm getting approximately four to six grand in dividends a year and think that it now may be better taking the cash and investing it into the ETFs or shares I want as a single additional transaction per year. Could you gents discuss the pros and cons of this? Also, if you sell a portion of the shares, do the registries send your record of all your buys so you don't have to do the calculations yourself? Can you pick which shares and therefore cost base you would like to sell or do I need to get out the dreaded spreadsheet? Asks Russell. Full on. And that's from Russell. All right, mate, let's start with the, uh, the first thing. Yeah, lots of, lots of shares, lots of individual uh, dividend reinvestment plan purchases. Um, he's saying he thinks it might have been better to just take the cash rather than deal it with the paperwork. Uh, what do you think? Look, I think it's never going to be the biggest tragedy in the world if you just by default reinvest all the dividends and you don't need it. It sort of aids in the compounding and just it's it's easy. I mean, it's not easier. It takes time, but it's easier <laughs> from from managing a portfolio perspective. Yep. And there's a lot of great examples where that's that's proven to be a very successful strategy. I don't do it though. I think I think yes, it is a nightmare when you're trying to work out cost bases and the rest of it. You can use things like ShareSite that'll that'll make that a bit easier for you. But um, as someone who is a stock picker, I prefer to take the cash and then put it into what I consider to be the best opportunity at that mm. point in time. It might not always be that company. It might be a great company I'm continuing to hold and still love. It just it's not. The, as good a value as this thing over here. And this dividend represents some fresh capital that I can maybe pull for some, from, from some other dividends or add some of my savings to and then buy. And just have, I, have, I have a cleaner transaction history and I've got more control over where it goes. Yeah. Um, so if you back yourself as, as, a, as a half decent stock picker, I think it's the way to go to do it manually. But as I say, look, honestly, if someone was to say, no, 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 I think this is the better way to go. It's just easier for me. And I'm never going to argue strongly against that. I, you know, it, it, it's, it's not, it's not going to be the biggest blunder in the world. Mm. Um, other than the, the company you're reinvesting dividends in is on its way to zero, which case it's kind of sucks holding that anyway. <laughs> so I don't know. What do you think? Um, it's hard. Uh, I, oh, in order. Okay. Uh, I don't use DRPs for the reason you said, Ram, which is I want to um, separate out my investing and I want to invest in the best things rather than equal bits of everything. I've said many times before, though, uh, I'm very, 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 very happy with anyone who says, I just want to do it automatically because it's easier for me. And if that keeps you investing and reinvesting the dividends, then great. If you know, um, we said lots of times you don't have to be absolutely at the pinnacle of anything. Uh, if you own a decent portfolio of shares and you're investing in all of them over time, you'll probably do very, very well. So I don't do it. Uh, I wouldn't, that's not my preference for anyone else, but I also wouldn't be particularly uh, energized about it if they said, look, I just want to make it easy for myself and simple and all that kind of stuff. That said, as you're rightly finding now, Russell, uh, the paperwork can be a pain. Uh, and when you sell them, yeah, it's, it is it is particularly, particularly can be particularly painful. If you don't sell, if you don't hold them for the long term, or you only sell once at some end point, then you wrap all those parcels up together. And it's, it's it's easier because you've got to go to one space. But yeah, you do need to keep track of each individual transaction. So be mindful of that. As you, I'm sure, know, Russell, but for the benefit of our listeners, um, you still have to pay tax on that. So reinvesting dividends in 
means you don't get the cash, but you still have a tax bill, a cash tax bill to pay in the year because it's income in that year. So if you do that, just make sure you've got enough cash on the side. Um, the registries won't keep the record of it. Sorry, mate. You're going to have to do all that yourself. Uh, you can see the ins and outs when they happen, but they don't, and you can kind of use the registry records, I think, to cobble together prices, but it's a bit painful after the fact. So yeah, keep yourself a spreadsheet, make your life a whole lot easier. Um, you can pick which shares and therefore cost base you would like to sell. Uh, and I just pulled up, just to make sure I did this properly, pull up the ATO um, uh, fact sheet. Uh, and they say, there are th quote, there are three common ordering methods for parcel allocation, which is what they call it, when calculating capital gains tax on shares. One, first in, first out. In other words, the first ones you buy, the first ones you sell. Last in, first out, which is this last shares you bought, are sold first, or highest in, first out, uh, which can be also referred to as highest cost, first out. The most expensive shares bought are sold first, regardless of timing. They say, quote, a different method of parcel selection may be applied for each parcel of shares sold. Most people use FIFO because it's easiest to keep track of. However, you can choose any of these three methods, end quote. Um, yes, so that's, that's available to you, mate, if you want. Uh, again, I don't hate um, DRPs. I've done them before. I don't do them now. Uh, I, I think I'd probably lean towards your suggestion of bundling the money up and buying your best ideas, which is kind of what Ram talked about as well. The only thing I would say is that assumes you're adding more money regularly. If you're only reinvesting dividends, you're buying you know one transaction every six months where the dividends come in. Uh, that's probably not great for diversification either. So maybe just have a think about that a little bit. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't wrap up my entire portfolio dividends and buy just one company every six months. Uh, if you're adding other money and buying other companies, fine. Otherwise, just be mindful of diversification on the way through. Yep, nice. Mate, uh, one from Lachlan who says, Hi, Scott and Ram. First, I just want to say thank you for providing us listeners with such expert knowledge while you both inadvertently go off on a tangent and chew our ears off. <laughs> this question relates more to economics through positive interest rates and inflation. Given the cash rate at the time of typing is 4.1%, and the current inflation rate is at 7% for quarter two. My question is, how important are positive real interest rates in combating inflation? Further, how <laughs> difficult would it be to obtain positive real rates? And if applicable, does it change people's propensity to hold cash in the bank, such as a term deposit, rather than investing in equities? Love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, guys. And fool on. That's a big meaty question, mate. Mate, what, what are you doing lobbing that into the mix <laughs> one hour past this the start? Of the podcast, exactly. Oh, my gosh. That is such a huge question. It's big, isn't it? Oh, I didn't even know where to start. Yeah, um, <laughs> I suspect you don't want real positive rates if you're trying to combat um, uh, inflation and work your way out of a very highly leveraged situation. <laughs> you want the debt that you've got and uh, governments have quite a bit of it. Um, as I said before, the US is 124% debt to equity. It's, it's, mm. it's, it's the highest it's ever been there. It's, it, you know, interest is their third largest expense and only getting bigger. A bit of a potential for a doom loop unless they, they really course correct. But generally what you want to do, the least painful option particularly if you're wealthy, mm. is just to inflate, inflate it away. And you need, you need negative real rates to sort of do that. So that's my conspiratorial answer. I think that's, that's what you want. If you had real positive rates, that is going to make that scenario a lot 
trickier to navigate. Mm. I don't think you can afford to have. I mean, the thing here's a really basic question that is very hard to answer, and it applies to whether you're talking about shares or, uh, you know, lending money at cash converters or whatever it happens. Like, where does the interest come from? Now, you kind of say, oh, it comes from the government. That's not an answer. Well, where do they get the money from? Right? Like someone's borrowed money and they've promised you an interest rate on that. So they obviously feel as though they can take your money, use it to make more money, make it worth their while, and still cover the cost that, that you've put on them for, for lending them money in the first place. Where's that, where's that coming from? Mm. Now, it's a genuine, like that is, that is a very deep question. And I speak at the sovereign level, and I suspect – when you look at it, unless you're the kind of person that thinks one plus one equals three, <laughs> there is a there is a, a a point that that unless there is genuine and real wealth creation, that is, we're just getting more and more stuff. To my yep. point on Friday, with the less amount of input, uh, effort, work, yes. then then th- that interest is not going to be real in any great sense. It's just like I've just got more seashells in my and that pouch. correlates and that correlates with with the reality that productivity growth is the only thing that improves real living standards. A hundred percent it does. The only thing. I mean, well, population no. Canada national level, but at a per person level, it's all productivity. Go on. And, I, and I would go, I'd go down a level. You're right. But I would say, well, what productivity is just technology. Yes. Whether that technology is a pointier stick or a, yes. you know, laser engraver. It's, I mean, it's, it, it, can, it's, it can be better work methods. It's probably intellectual property yeah slash technology in that in that great group of stuff but you're absolutely right you, you can only optimize around a bet yes. burger production so much in terms of where one person stands when they're flipping the burger you're right yes, correct. Yes. but it's technology you know um i'm a i'm a lumberjacking company that's a word look it up and you are too i use an axe and you use a chainsaw who's yeah. going to be more productive correct, right correct. yeah uh, who's going to offer who's going to be able to offer the cheaper product you know it just Technology is everything. I don't know tech is sort of like a thing these days, yeah, and we just yeah. all equate that with computers and electronics. But no, technology is properly framed is everything I towards our standard that, that living. Is, can I just a quick – that is such a such an important point, right? We think about technology as being hardware, computer hardware and software. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of is these days in the most dominant sense. The wheel is technology and acts itself – is Fire is technology, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's those things that, are, and I don't, they're probably a, a all encompassing term of yeah. a definition, but it's that idea of things that are used to improve productivity. That that almost it's almost the reverse way, right? You you describe technology as as a function of or a, a, a contributor to productivity rather than vice versa. It's yep. it's it's the catch all of how did you, how did you manage not to have to break that tree down twig by stick, twig with your hands? Well, yeah. I, I I did. I used a thing. Yeah, yeah and, and the thing is technology, regardless of how sophisticated or otherwise it feels. Oh, it's, you, you have no, I think when you sort of look around and peel back the layers of, mm-hmm. of, of what's in front of you here, when you look at the prosperity of nations and the wealth of nations, it is because we have a really good capital stock. And, 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 I, and I'm, capital just gets used in replacement of the term money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and money is a type of capital. But I mean- Capital is something that you can use to make something else. It's a yep. non-consumable item in and of itself, like an axe. I can't consume an axe, but I can mm. use it to make firewood. But, but, but when you have a very diverse, well-maintained capital stock in an economy, it means that you can make a lot of stuff without much effort. Yep. You're, really, you're really rich. That's, 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 that's true wealth. And again, if we all lived on a tiny little island, 
and you guys over there have some some rocks and some pointy sticks, okay, you can maybe put some leaves together and have a bit of shelter of that. But I've got, I don't know, a combine harvester. I've got <laughs> a cement truck. I've got, you know, I've, I've, I've got kilns. I've got blacksmithing. So, you know, I'm just, I'm richer. I'm a hundred, but whatever, whatever money you want to use or whatever, like that, that is, that is true wealth and comfort. And, and that is, that is where I think all gets lost in, in all of this. So just to come back to the original point here with, within, um, with real interest rates, the reason why it makes money, it, sorry, it makes sense to borrow money at a cost is because I can use that money to enhance my capital base, my productivity, and I can get more for less. I've created real value. And so now I can, I can now go out there, win market share, make profit, make it worth my while and pay you back and make it worth your while. It works beautifully. It doesn't work when I've invested that in some monkey token that did nothing. <laughs> now I've still got to pay you back, right? And if I'm the kind of entity that can create my own money, well, I will pay you back. So I'll just print it out of thin air and pay you back mm -hmm. as all the crypto cowboys did and as, as, as many governments around the world tend, tend to do. And in that scenario, when you, again, you just, just to really dumb it down here, you look back and say, actually, we've taken all this money, we've, people got paid there for a time, we had all this activity, but we didn't enrich ourselves in any way, shape or form. And the only way that I am still make, getting whole on the debt and, the, and this interest is because it's, it's, it's been created. It's, it's, not, it's not been generated through increasing wealth of the society. Does that make sense? I'm kind of yep. a bit all over the place there, but but no, it's it sort of that's why I think we are in trouble now. Is because we've had way too low interest rates for too long, a whole bunch of bad malinvestment in dumb things that never generated any lasting value for society, and now we've, in order to sort of try and avoid any reckoning, we've just bailed out and printed money to you know to like drunken sailors. And we're at a situation where we kind of really need negative real rates. That is, the rates are getting relative to inflation to kind of square the whole equation again. Because there is no, there is no real interest to be generated here because there's been no real value that's been created here at an aggregate level. I think that's right. I think... Um Without wanting to drag this on for the sake of it getting too deeper, too much further it's a big deeper in the weeds. Well, there is future value can still be created from here, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't stop at this point and say therefore X. I think, and not you're not saying this, but I just would mm. add that future value is important, right? So if I yep. borrow money to buy a house over thirty years, uh, I'm to some degree deferring some consumption or pulling forward some consumption. I'm I'm choosing to have a shelter now, and the thing I could have bought in five years' time. I now can't buy because I'm going to be paying back the house. So there's kind of that. There yep. is, an, and back to the inflation thing, if I buy a house at 21, I'm expecting that my income will hopefully rise steadily over that period of time. And so there is some element of me arbitraging my future earnings or or we don't even directly speculate on it, but assuming that you know at some point uh, I earn a bit more so I can put more of that. So it's not as much a burden at that point. And that's kind of the the national, or that's the personal um uh, example or, or analogy to the national inflation story is you borrow some money now and hopefully if inflation goes up in a few years time the tax base is higher and so you're collecting more money than you thought you would and that's going to pay down the debt or at least to make the debt smaller as a proportion of your total income either of those two things is can be true separately depending on whether you pay the debt down or just carry it forward so those things those things are true and that's where to to your point mate uh, and to to Lachlan's point when he asked the question 
that uh, idea of negative interest rates means that the economy is growing faster than the debt pile is growing and therefore you effectively inflate away the debt. It never goes mm-hmm. away, mm-hmm. but the burden of the debt as a proportion of your income or your wealth falls over time. And that's, that's the benefit for national governments of that. Now, I will You can still say, be poorer off in that situation though. Right. And what I was going to say was at a... We need to be careful with that because we, we too often separate the us and the them. People say the government should do this or I'm not giving the government more money. Uh, what that means is that the government runs up more debts. Uh, we are still Australia and Australians and we will cop the consequences. Not necessarily line for line, dollar for dollar. We don't have to. Andrew's not going to get a bill for his share of the national debt. But the economic circumstances of the country will impact all of us. And so when we kind of pretend that the government can spend a, a deficit because it's them and not us, then we kind of disconnect that. We really shouldn't because when- We have when, a cost. Right. And when the they, yeah. being the government, get to inflate away that debt, it does so by making us poorer in living standards, even if not in absolute dollar terms, mm. in living standard terms because we have to bear the cost of that inflation. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're paying 4%, 7% more for everything right now. Uh, and that helps the government debt come down. But unless we're getting pay rises to match, we are, we are poorer individually. Mate. And that goes both ways. During, during the last 30 years, we all got richer individually because the government took on more debt. I mean, that, that worked both ways, right? The government mm. spent more than it earned and it magicked that money into existence either by borrowing it or printing it and got to pretend for a few years there that we were all getting richer because look at all the good things we've got. Didn't cost any more. Look at that. Magic money, magic assets until you realize that that came with a debt that needs to be either repaid or the interest bill covered. Um, and that was the exact equivalent of the reverse happening. We don't complain about when we're getting richer when the government's taking on debt because, hey, look how good we are mm. when we have to then inflate that away or choose to inflate that away if that is indeed what happens. And it may not. Uh, inflation might come down more quickly and we might end up with positive rates again. But uh, in any case, that, that, that circumstance does go both ways and we shouldn't just look at the downsides and say, here's where we are now, but rather we got the benefit, knowingly or not, for probably a good few decades mm. of, of that wind up uh, we'll have to pay the bill if it winds down. Well, that's it was just what we were so dumb as a country. And we, I mean, debt yeah. is just bringing forward consumption, as you Correct. rightly say. I can wait and save or, um, and do it when I can buy it outright, or I can just bring it all forward. That's fine when you're creating genuine value. <laughs> when all yeah. you're doing is just inflating the housing stock. Think about the proportion. I can't give you a number on this, but think of the proportion of Australians out there slogging their guts out, working 40, 50 hours every week. Just to service a, a, a mortgage, yeah. just to service a debt. That, the money, that money could otherwise be used to create new businesses, to spend into the economy. No, it's just going to pay back debt. And it, it is a huge amount of our productivity and effort and sweat is, is in, in that. And that's fine because we decided that we, that we went into that deal. I want the house now mm-hmm. and I will trade you that a lifetime of work and repayment for that. Okay, cool. That's yeah. what you wanted to do. But, yeah. but we, but we, what value was created here? Mm. And this is, do you remember when we were kids, if you were a millionaire, you were rich, like a millionaire. Like, what the hell? The average house in Sydney's $1.4 million. Like yeah. an average crap hole, two bedroom, whatever. It's sort of, it's not a lot of money anymore. So you can feel this notional sort of sense of wealth and, oh, I've got a million dollars. Well, you know, it ain't what it used to be here, right? And this is like, that's that's where this measure of wealth can be, can be wrong, and and I would much rather think about the. Why well, got my parents' generation, where it was only one adult that worked, and they could buy a house at four times their income, mm. and 
you know, but you know, my dad was, oh, but I was only on thirty thousand dollars a year when I first. I'm like, yeah, but you're an idiot, Dad. Frankly, that's you know, you're you're, you're confusing. <laughs> you're using some arbitrary measure here. Think about the person. Fast forward to today, the thirty year old who can buy a house at four times their income that doesn't can have the option of one parent staying at home and raising the kids. It's not an option. Yeah, you can't. Correct. It's impossible to do. So. Yeah. Yeah, my pay is much bigger in notional terms than what it was a generation ago. And yeah, in a lot of ways, I've got all of these cool gadgets that my my parents didn't have. Mm-hmm. But are we wealthier? Like, I don't I don't know if that's necessarily an easy question to to answer. And I feel as though that is again. It's, I know it's my favorite hobby horse, but I think it's just a period of extreme luck in terms of the world needing all of the commodities that we have. And us being the geniuses and rather in sort of doing anything smart and sensible with it, just decided to inflate our housing stock to insane <laughs> levels such that now half the workforce is breaking their, you know, back every day just to service this thing. And I, I, I don't we, – we are in a situation now where it's sort of like, yeah, interest rates are going up, but inflation's going up a lot higher. And guess what? That's what happens when you create a bunch of money and don't actually build any new capital stock with it, <laughs> productive capital stock. It's, it's, it's I, inevitable. I kind of, I mostly agree with you. I, I, I'm going to just I'm going to play the other side of it just for the fun of it, just to kind of give our listeners a bit of extra context, and we can agree and disagree, and then go do something else because this podcast's gone off for way too long already. Um, the own the, the one thing I would say is that humans find ways of spending money on the things that we value most, and those things go to somebody else. And so I think there's there's some value in thinking about where uh, if we if we collectively like the the bargain we made ourselves, which is we will value houses overall because that's what we think is most important, and we'll do that. And and the ongoing slow moving auction that is the housing market will will generate that return. And I say that because the it's just not a real return. Just my quick interjection well, there. What's Except the return? That, it's the greater fool theory is the return. No, I mean return as in uh, as in the the benefit we get the, the the living standard benefit. We got a house. We got a you know we're happy with it. It's utility to use the economist term. Okay. Happiness, satisfaction, whatever those things are. I say that because we're no we're very very slightly less wealthy than the average American. The average Australian is slightly less wealthy than the average American. Their housing is much much cheaper than ours. And so you say, well, hang on, square that circle for me. They spend more on other things. And we could, in one version of the world, say, well, at least we own a house that we can live in. They've, they've frittered that away on uh, you know, food and clothing and whatever else they've spent their money on, cars and whatever. And uh, suckers, they've got expensive cars, but you know, the big yank tanks, they're going to break and rust out. And so at least I've got a house that's not going to deteriorate in value. I'm not making that argument necessarily, mate. I guess I'm just saying that whatever we spend our money on, whether it's housing or cars or holidays or whatever, we give to somebody else to perform the service or provide us with the good. And so if I buy a house from you and you say, ha sucky, you paid me $4 million for a, you know, a rundown rat infested, you know, bolt hole in, in Sydney, um, I got your money, but then you go and spend that money somewhere else. And then, you know, if I bought a car from you, you would have spent that money somewhere else. If I'd, if I'd gone on a holiday and you, you provided the, the, the accommodation, you would have spent that money somewhere else. There is an element of, of the circularity of, of any economy, the economy, the global economy, frankly, but you know, locally or nationally for our purposes, um, that, that, you know, the, the, the value we put in these things and the way we choose to allocate that capital 
if you save it, it never gets spent. So there's no utility in that other than a bit of satisfaction knowing you're not going to go broke. And when you spend it, whether you buy a house or a car or a holiday or some clothes or some whatever's uh, really expensive French champagne, um, the, the, the money still goes through somewhere. And I, I, I think I'm not as convinced that, I'm not as convinced with the argument of, you know, housing is a worse choice than many other things that could have been done with that money in terms of life choice and that utility or satisfaction that we get from the things we spend on. If we, if we think a house is worth $1.4 million, then it is. And I did that instead of buying a second car or a new car or something else. And if I'm constantly making that choice or the reverse choice, which the Americans make, which is I'm going to spend $500,000 on a house, not 1.4, but I'm going to buy the new Camaro and I'm going to buy the whatever, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. At, at a total living standard level measured other than in you know, pieces of seashells to, to your, use your example before. Uh, it's not a dead loss because the money goes somewhere. It's not like we, we say, I bought the house and I buried the money in the backyard. It, you know, it goes to the person who sells I think the you house. Do. No, I think you have, I think you have buried it in the backyard, almost literally. And the difference is, is that with, so I bought my house. Yep. This, is why, this is why so much of this wealth and like the Australian average wealth is, is it's like looking at a REIT who says that, look, all the property on our balance sheet is worth X. Yep. Is it? Is it really? Okay. Well, let's, let's say this. I bought a house for whatever I bought it for, and now I'm selling it for $2 million. And I've just so I've sold it. $2 million. Great. Mm -hmm. Oh, crap. I'm homeless. I guess I'll buy a house. So, so it's not real wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I either have to – the only way for me to access that money is to borrow against it or to, or to scale down is to go from my three-bedroom house yeah. to a two-bedroom unit. Yeah. And then if I want to access it, I've got to go to a one-bedroom unit, to a caravan, to a tent, to a cardboard box. So it's sort of like it's it's not real wealth if the money that I use is not surplus to my needs. If I can if I can sell you my house at $2 million and get equivalent utility elsewhere for $1 million, then that value has genuinely yes. been created. Yeah. But we, we, we haven't done that. So, so it's sort of like the only ones who win out of this property race are those who have, have leveraged up in an incredible high way so that so the, the actual return on their equity has been sufficient enough to do it. Mm. And they are just playing the greater fool theory game while ever it plays out and it's been playing out for a long time. So good luck to them. Um, but, it, but, but at some point, you know, like we've got to ask ourselves what real value has been created. I'm buying, if I'm a young person now and I'm entering into the housing market, I'm going to spend at least a million dollars in Sydney for something very ordinary. And I'm going to be probably working the next 30, 40 years just to pay the damn thing off. Yep. No value has been created, even for the person who sold it, who has to now live somewhere else. You know, it just, do you get where I'm, I'm getting at? Yeah, here? No, I do. I do. But I guess I'm making the point that if I'd spent half that money on the house, and the other half the money on something else. It, these things are only measures of utility represented by, by seashells is, mm. is, all, is the only point I'm making. We're mm. gonna, we're, I'm going to earn a certain amount of money between now and my day I die and I'm going to spend the vast majority of it in some way or other. Yep. And but, Americans spend theirs differently to the way Australians spend ours. But Australians don't have it. So we have no choice but to spend it on housing because generally people like to have a roof over their head. So yeah, okay, maybe I spent it somewhere else, but you're great. I spent it on a holiday. I spent it on some toys for my kids. I spent I spent it on something else. Whereas, like now, it's like, no, nah, you got no choice. You and your partner, you're both working. You're both up to the eyeballs, and there's nothing else left over. This is why all the retailers are cratering on the ASX. Harvey Norman came out the other day. I mean, they're all is like, no one's buying anything, 
And it's like, and then the banks are saying, oh, but, but, but arrears are fine. No one's defaulting on their loans. Yeah, no joke, because that's the last thing that's going to go. And we, we are, as, a, as an entire economy, committed to doing nothing other than working our guts out just to pay the, the debt back. We're not doing anything else with that. Yeah, the money might have gone somewhere else and everything else being equal, but it's probably better that it was somewhere else, right? Rather than all in just the one pot. That, that, but I, that's, that, what I'm sure, that's what I'm not sure about. Like we, we, we've made the decision. So culturally, communally, we've made that decision. There's, there's no, there's, there was nothing, no, nothing forced on us. I mean, recently it's actually population growth, frankly. But let's go mm-hmm. back before you know, pre-COVID. There was the, the average American, the average Australian said, "I'm going to spend my money this way." Yeah. And yes, to some degree, you're right that we had no other choice but to do it because that's what the prices are. But the prices aren't there because some government or Politburo or lizard people said, ha, 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 this little island down here, we're going to make everyone pay double for housing because we're just bastards. We, we made those choices ourselves. We literally said, I will outbid you. And you said, you will outbid me. And I said, I will outbid you. And the price became the net result of what we all decided to do. And that's, you know, it's not fair for individual people who are saying, well, shit, this is the only, excuse my language, this is the only choice I've got. But I guess I'm, you know, the money is going to be spent in some way, shape, or form. We have decided that's how we've collectively placed our priority chips. It's it's not there's there's no there's no policy there's no whatever. It's just that's how we've got to this point. Yeah, it's game you know theory. What I mean? It's game theory. Oh yeah, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it, game theory, right? Yeah, I, I did it. Same I did US, it. Except there's there's just they've, they've just making different choices. They've all gone. Yeah, I'll pay that much. How much for that much? No, we're not, none of us are paying that. And so yeah. it just never got that high. In in, a, in an alternative world. In exactly the same circumstances, American property is worth double, Australian property is worth half just because that's the way things netted out. Mm. Mm. Oh, so much to say. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I get your point that we've all just made these decisions just for our own individual circumstances. Yeah, but we, yeah. the, the, the cultural phenomenon at play in Australia yes. is like, well, this, this is how you get... If you're, sens- if you're financially sensible... You buy a house and you invest in property and you make wealth. Why would you think that? Because it's worked wonderfully well for the yes. last generation. That's why you yeah. think that. Yes. And yes. you've got every expert under yep. the sun and every policy yep. under the sun incentivizing and encouraging you to do that. Great. 100%. That's, no one's planned it, but that's how it's kind of gone. <laughs> but yeah. where we find ourselves is completely now beholden to careful what you wish for, right? So we're, yes, totally. we're all still living in the same kind of houses, more or less, right? Yeah. They're a bit bigger on average. And yeah, okay, maybe there's a media room or a jacuzzi yeah. out the back yeah. as well. But, yeah. but you know, we, we, are, we are now in a society where it's that and a little bit of a pittance left over for anything else <laughs> that you might want to do. And, I, and, I completely agree. And I, that's, that's what I, I find frustrating is that because there is a parallel world out there with better planning and policy and incentives, yeah. et cetera, yeah. where we're buying houses for four, five, six, seven times income. Sure. Yes. Where everyone wants to, but, we've, but, but I've also got the flexibility where maybe if I want to raise the kids, I can do it. I have to pay a childcare worker. Oh, I can buy you know, maybe I can maybe I can have my house and have a boat because I really enjoy fishing. You know, yeah. but but we don't have that choice now. It's just like we're both working, we're working our guts out. We're going to have a mortgage until we're seventy eight, and never going to see the kids. Someone else is going to raise them, and there's nothing left over for anything else. Oh, and if I get sick or lose my job, I am screwed, and I'm a forced seller in in this market because I just can't make make ends meet. It's an yeah. incredibly fragile scenario we've we've built for ourselves, and. And that's why I get a bit exasperated with it all because it's, it is what it is and it's, mm. the chips have landed the way they have. But then the amount of shoulder shrugging, it goes, oh, it's always like that. I'm just going to extrapolate that forever. <laughs> like, well, yeah. 
gosh, I just don't think mathematically you can extrapolate no, it. For and, a week. and we're on a unique ticket on that one. I, I'm not taking any. I'm not taking any of what I've just said to be, and therefore it will continue forever. There, there is absolutely. No. I'm a million percent with you on no, the. Ninety percent of quote unquote experts say that. Right. Though, exactly. Right. Yes. One hundred percent. Which is like really, you know. Yeah. Yeah. He's talking about gold before and like how it's all subjective. Well, same with houses to mm. to an extent, right? Like it's sort of there is a there is a collective madness in it in it. Oh god, yeah. I, I, can, you know, can, you, can you imagine? I, I, as much as what I've just said, it was largely devil's advocate. Uh, I've said on Twitter a while ago, and actually I had a conversation with a couple of um, economists and property people. And, you know, it, it almost feels a bit socialist. I got called a Marxist, by the way, during the week, which is a <laughs> for me. Um, but it feels, a bit, it feels a bit socialist to say. But, you know, ima- imagine a scenario where we all live exactly where we live, but the cost of that housing was half of what it is now. I, I consider us to be much wealthier. Well, that's the thing. Well, no, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say wealthier. Like nom- nominally, we've got less money because my house right. is worth half as much. Right. But I would say we are wealthier yes. in terms of, as I've defined it previous in the, previously in this podcast, yeah. much wealthier. No, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we, as you say, we could, I mean, we, we, I've said before too, we, we, you know, women join the workforce belatedly and, and you know, still not equal pay, but we pretty much just co-opted that into house prices rather yep. than actually saying, all we did. guess what? Women want to work and can work and that's really great. Now we can both work part-time or I can take the time off and the wife can raise the kids or vice versa or, you know, whatever. We can spend, we can both work and spend more on leisure activities or my, my honest one, if you think about this, here's the, here's the really crazy thing, right? Imagine what we have today. So we got all the things we've got today, everything we've got today, except housing was worth half the price, including mm-hmm. rent. So yeah, everything's mm-hmm. proportional. Yep. We could all be literally working half. We could all work twenty hours a week. Sign me up. That's right? the society I want to live in. I know. In. I know. And you, like for all of the things we could have, it, nothing's more valuable than time. It's like so. Hang on. If we just all agreed, I'm not suggesting this at all because people jump up and down. If we all agreed that housing and rent and everything else was just going to be half the price from now on, just boom, down it goes. Yep. So now I only have to work three days a week. Yeah, and you have to work three days a week. Yeah, and we. Why would I work more than that? Well, I could pay more for my house, but that would be stupid. So I'm just going to work two days, three days a week. Yeah, good idea. Let's all do that. There is, as you said, there's a collective madness, collective delusion in the, in the whole thing, which is very late in the podcast to be philosophically talking about this sort of stuff, but it's not untrue. Anyway, this, this is going way off on... T- Look, the original question here was versus in- interest rates versus inflation. Rates. Right, yeah. But these are the consequences of that. It's just it's a lovely example and it all yeah. roads lead back to Australian property because it is the black hole for capital in, in the country. But that is the natural consequence Mm. of unproductive investment and that's what housing has been unproductive yes you can live in it yes it's great but it's not generating the kinds of yields that can be real and decent in any extended way for any period of time it just it just can't be right because it's not what what what's the utility well i get to live there okay The same utility, whether it's three times high. I had a Correct. chat to a friend the other day. He was talking about how well his, his house has gone up in value. I was like, great, go spend it. And he looked at me like, what do you mean? Well, you've got all this money. Go and spend it. I, I you're can. A, you're a hard man. You're a how, hard how can I do it? We're like, oh, well, well uh, you know, offset. It was like, well, that's, that's a loan. That's, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be a, 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 a difficult person maybe a little bit <laughs> a little but it's bit. like it's made up it is totally made up money like, you want to go live in a caravan park absolutely you've made some real money there but if you yeah. want to sustain your lifestyle and sustain the kind of house that you have you've made nothing <laughs> nothing <laughs> I, I challenge me on that like i i, I don't it is you've got more seashells you, there's a bigger number in your bank account or 
on on your personal balance sheet. That's what you've got, a bigger number. Yeah. Your, your actual wealth hasn't changed at all. That's right. Probably, you can't probably, do anything more with it. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. You've, you've got it. You know, what whoop do whoop do for you. Uh, it makes you feel better. That's the wealth effect there, right? That's that's probably that's where exactly there's some benefit to it. But yeah. <sighs> anyway. I don't know, Harvey. Longest podcast ever. Yeah, what are we up to? We've done an hour and a half, give or take. Uh, okay. um, we, we'll I, tell, I warned you, it was, it was two past one <laughs> and you asked and you dropped that question. You didn't have to spend 28 minutes talking about it. If you could have had a quick seven or eight minute answer, that, we would have been done. No, that is still the short answer. I could go on. <laughs> <laughs> but to save me and to save our dear listeners, because I'm a friend of the listener, we will call it there. That was a fun podcast. For the three people who are still listening, you've obviously fallen asleep. Uh, so when you wake up, uh, thank you for listening. Until next Friday. Fool. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.